I'm incredibly optimistic about this ecosystem. There's a lot of macro stuff that is really pushing us along that I don't think we could have imagined five years ago. Some of it is geopolitical, but in terms of like what we as an ecosystem can do to help move it along further, I think there's this sort of notion around like information exchange, community building, helping each other, I think is really important. We want to encourage people to do that, to connect more, create more moments of this serendipity, and then we can all prosper together. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Say hello to Basket, transforming Indonesia's supply chains and redefining what's possible in commerce. Basket sees the untapped potential in over 200,000 distributors and wholesalers. This startup merges tradition with innovation, technology, and financial support. They are not looking to disrupt. They are here to collaborate. The results are modernized operations, streamlined supply chains, and a win-win for manufacturers and consumers alike. Learn more at www.basket.app. Morning, Shuyen. Good morning, Jeremy. Happy National Day to you. Uh, how was your National Day? Uh, we watched TV on my end. It was the first time they ever held fireworks. Well, not the first time, but it was the first time that the fireworks that was not at the main location. We always watched on TV, but at the satellite location, it was like in the stadium. It was packed. It was great. Patriotism was high. Uh, and the fireworks were awesome. Oh, and it was our kids' uh, first ever National Day in person, but also first ever fireworks ever. So the two of them had a nice, nice video recording of a trio or the one-year-old, their first ever experience. To, I love uh, it. I love fireworks. it. We had some people over, casual potluck, you know, chicken curry, bihun type of setup. And then Ooh, we put yeah. the live Local stream food. up on TV for everyone to kind of like watch what was going on. And um, I thought yeah. what was fun was we had a ton of PRs in the room, but only two citizens. Yours truly is one of them. And um, everyone was like, I've lived here for 10 plus years and I've never seen this before. Like, I've never seen a National Day Parade. And I was like, how is this possible? It was so, you know, they were watching it and, you know, like they're like, what is total defense? And then there was like that little skit with the kid or whatever. It was like a little bit cringe. And they were like, what is total defense? And like the whole thing comes out and they were, you know, surprised by the military vehicles coming through. And also I hadn't realized, did you notice that flag parade had corporations in it i wasn't paying that close attention and if there was a trans part so i might have missed it but i did see the total defense okay. one and my favorite part was the cyber defense because you know you show like scabs fishing malware and I was like, yes, all the techie side of me is like, yes, please prevent scans from happening. And Yeah, no, it was it was actually really good. And I think, you know, I don't know. I'm always mixed like a part of me. I'm like, this is so cringy. But I'm like, actually, these are important topics. Like, what does it mean to be like economic defense, social defense? How do we like work together yeah. on these fronts? And so I think I come out on the side of like, positive, even though sometimes when you're watching it, you're like, I mean, I mean, every country's Independence Day is not a time subtlety, right? <laughs> I'm just saying, like, it's not as if, like, July 4th is not, like, full-out America, you know, with the beer, the flag. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, totally, totally, I mean, totally. Yeah, it's, it's, every Independence Day is always on the nose, right? I mean, uh, French have, for example, they have Bastille Day, right? I mean, totally. a big day. They also have a military totally. parade, very common for totally. them. Totally. 
Uh, and they actually have uh, contingents from other countries who are participating really? there. That's in interesting. Yeah, yeah, I had no yeah. idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I, I think it's a very common aspect, I think. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. the kids, you know, we had all these P1 kids who obviously have learned all the songs. And so they were like dancing <laughs> and singing in front of the TV. And the parents were just yeah. like, wow, the brainwashing starts young. And I'm like, you have the rest of your life to be cynical. You should just lean into this. Enjoy it while you can. You know, that reminded me that we did have, our kindergarten did have a National Day performance. And so that was my first ever performance was, well, I mean, I mean, let's say my kid debut performance does not give me high hopes for her to be a Broadway performer one day. But she crushed it. I think enthusiasm and very cuteness. But let's just say that, you know, three years old is not really the star time, I think, to show your case. I think she was just holding like a bunch of like rods of, you know, those yeah, confetti. Yeah, yeah. And I have no idea what those are. And then she was doing the song called Bicycle and anyway I loved it of course it was very, it was very, it was it very was, on the nose it for was me. pitched it was, it was for you to 100% love 100% about Bicycle yeah, it was 100% yeah, for was, parents to feel like yeah. they're spending good money at this kindergarten yeah and yeah, exactly. I don't want to say it, but my child is obviously cuter than all the other children. That's the feeling <laughs> it should evoke in you. I agree to disagree. <laughs> so anyway, the rest of the kindergarten, it was basically like also had total defense. So you had little firefighters, the oh police. Oh my God, so cute. And I was like, oh boy, this is so cute. Anyway, so I was like, okay, well, it's total defense. Uh, but you know, it did remind me that when I was in the military, you know, I think one thing they always, you know, when you're 18 year old going through this military service, everybody's telling you about why you had to defend a country. Like, there's a lot of like terminology. And then I always remember, the, the instructors they were trying to motivate us and then they were like oh they're here to take your land they're here to take your they're here to take your women <laughs> to be honest is what they said and then I was like you know what this is probably like the most elemental part of this entire military thing like forget all the you know like terminology and all yeah, that stuff they're here to right? take your uh, stuff they're here to kill your family that's why you gotta defend the country yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I was like yeah, just like anyway but I, I thought the reason why it was like I was watching this like kindergarten performance and all these kids and all these parents and then I was learning my cute kids and I was like oh my god I would do anything to protect my kids right and I was thinking to myself like Man, nobody wants to piss off this kindergarten because I'm saying like, this is like a hundred parents that were like hundred percent like kill to defend their kids, right? And I mean, it was just an interesting moment where it kind of like clicked for me where I was like watching this, you know, to some extent, you know, they always call it about mama bear, right? Papa bear, right? Which is like people becoming very defensive of their family. I think there's a big part of like aspects. So yeah, you need to have um, something I mean, worth defending, I, right? So whether it's your house or your family, why do you think we encourage yeah. people to buy houses and procreate, you know? It's yeah. all part of the plan, Jeremy. All part of the plan. There we go. I know as an 18-year-old, you have neither, right? You have no money, no property, and no family. So you're just like, oh, okay, I'm here. <laughs> what am I doing? Awesome to hear about all the various national days that are out there. I think what's interesting in terms of regional news, I think we were sharing a couple of them. Uh, one of them that you shared was about the upcoming uh, U.S. Biden administration on venture capital investments in China. Stuff you want to share about that? Well, I think it's just a progression of some of the work that we've talked about before, but it's an additional executive order limiting VC investments into Chinese semiconductors, quantum computing, right. and certain artificial intelligence applications. For the past 30 years, the U.S. has been investing yeah. heavily into China. It's like a second largest economy in the world, diversification, growth. And even though it is sort of a narrow set of restrictions, I do think it casts a chill over investing in a more broadly. And 
it really makes people think about the perception of investing in the enemy, even if that's not actually what's happening. And I think the way the U.S. always gets used on reporting requirements, which is to think about like, hey, even if I'm doing something totally legitimate, the fact that I report all this stuff, this kind of admin burden, is it worth it? Should I do it? So I think this is just like another nail in the coffin, another step down the road. I don't know what the right analogy is here. Yeah, I think you're right to say that it is a progression, right? And I think that story they picks of that and what's been announced every kind of like, I'll say every half a good sign from my perspective. I think it's less about, I think this is a reaction, which is like, what does this current thing mean? Which of course means all stuff around reporting requirements, et cetera, et cetera. But also I think there's a sensation that like this could continue for every half a year for in terms of new legislation for the next one year, next four years. Um, and I think a lot of funds, the interesting thing is that it covers obviously private investments, right? And these private investments takes a long time, right? So they take, you know, five years for the private equity at least, right? Uh, 10, 12, you know, 15 for venture capital. And so that time horizon basically means that you can't be just be thinking about the legislation today, but you think about what the legislation climate would be in the next 10 years. And so you already have to take the worst case scenario of this, otherwise you can't exit. But one other thing I think about as well is about what it means for Southeast Asia as well. So I think one thing that we notice obviously is that this means that there's going to be less investments from the US, for example, into uh, China. I think the EU in the article says that they are also considering doing the same. But I think what's interesting, of course, is that they used to diversify in China. And so now they have to diversify in other countries, right? And I think that Southeast Asia may receive some net inflows, I guess, from this. Yeah. Because I mean, they're still recording. I don't know yeah. how much, I mean, but also, I mean, where do you yeah. think are the semiconductor, quantum computing, and AI work yeah. being done, right? I think probably what South Korea, Japan. Taiwan. Yeah. We yeah. do actually have a quantum computing center in Singapore um, that's doing right. really interesting work. But I mean, I think another consequence, maybe you might see more Chinese companies headquartering in Singapore trying yeah, to sort of shed, uh, you know, the Chinese or separating out entities and having sort of a Singapore-based entity that is cleaner for investing. I think we've already seen this strategy before, right? For example, uh, there are countries in Southeast Asia where, you know, there's a lot of textiles. Um, and so, you know, there's been a big push for textiles to be pushed out of China. And so for various reasons, right? Uh, and then as a result, I think Chinese companies have been moving their capital, that's one, but also their management and set up factories, right? In Southeast Asian country in order to be able to continue exporting under the supply chain. So I think there's an interesting dynamic where, you know, it has happened in other industries, but I think this will happen a lot for tech folk. I mean, obviously, I think the other part of it is just like, it's not just a push factor, but also there's a pull factor. I, I was talking to, you know, a Chinese entrepreneur to be, I mean, the person was thinking from their perspective was like, I think of the Chinese tech crackdown and I actually had known somebody who unfortunately had gone to jail. And it was like, hey, you know, if I choose to build a business, do I want to build this in China or do I want to build this in America, uh, Singapore, right? And so I think there's a little bit of that factor where they were like, well, you know, over a 10-year game, we don't know what the legislation within China is going to look like. But of course, I think a lot of entrepreneurs who are coming to Singapore obviously then struggle in terms of like the right networks, the right entry point, uh, the right conversation <laughs> to have, the right markets to go after. So I think there's a big issue. Yeah. Well, and also, and it costs, right? I think Singapore is a pretty expensive place to do business. And so I, I think there's this just like net great thing. You're like, hey, more talent is coming in. More investment is coming. Right. You're like, oh, but it's really expensive to do business here. It's also a small country. Um, right. It's hard to hire. Um, and right. so how do you kind of navigate that? Which right. is something I think is a really interesting one. You know, I kind of make the joke like, Hiya, hurry up and build the MRT to JB. Then, you know, you can relieve some of the housing hey, it's pressure. It, it, it's supposedly 40% complete. So, is it? Um, uh, fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah, the RTS. No, but I actually think that would be amazing, right? It's like Oakland and San Francisco. Like you could actually have a 
ton more people live in JBE. And if they had yeah. easy commute access to Singapore, that actually yeah. would benefit both countries. Um, yeah, 100%. I, it makes a lot of sense. And that train link has gone through. I read a Wikipedia this last week and I was like, yeah, it's gone through a lot of up and down. So I'm glad at least the Singapore to Johor Bahru link is still going on. By yeah, KL, too far. Got, too hard to do. Too, I, no, I was, I was still looking forward to that one, actually, to be honest. Um, I mean, that would be amazing. But I mean, yeah, there's amazing. other things. Yeah, but I think this topic of like, hey, once you land in Singapore, like, where do you start? How do you get plugged in and, you know, start getting connected to the community? And I think one challenge right. about Singapore is it can feel incredibly siloed. So you can right. have, you know, very robust communities in, but they're all separated from each other and they don't necessarily yeah. all talk to each other. And all of them run on WhatsApp. It's not like there's like a right. website where you're like, hey, how do I find out about stuff? You, you sort of slowly meet people and they're like, I'll add you to a WhatsApp. And then once you get into the WhatsApp, it's like, oh, all this stuff is happening. Who knew? Right. And so, you know, I think there's like the China Chinese, the Indian Indian, the local Chinese, the Rocket alumni, the European refugee. There are just so many different vertical groups of people. Right. And I really hope, you know, we can make a way for them to like come together and share ideas. Because I think that's actually how we come up with a more robust yeah. ecosystem. Right. But I guess, Jeremy, like, what advice would you give someone? You know, I've, I've decided, okay, I'm going to start my next venture. I'm going to base it in Singapore so mm. that I can future-proof myself for the next 10 years. Right. Where do I get started? Well, you know, I think I'd love to jump to the, obviously, the professional side. But I think the most important thing is really get situated yourself in Singapore, right? I guess today's episode is all about Singapore. But I think if you're moving to Singapore, I think you just have to make sure that you really understand Singapore as a country, but also I think Southeast Asia history, right? In the country. Because I think if you look at Singapore as just a whole country, there's a lot of like parameters and I don't know, from your past country, wherever it is, that you may just kind of like bring in and you just have all these assumptions, right? Uh, but for example, like, Southeast Asia, Singapore is a big story within Southeast Asia for thousands of years in terms of trade. I was just uh, reading this fun history bit about one of the old um, reports of Singapore, right, in the 1800s. And then the, some British guy was like, oh, no, I've visited Singapore. It's such a bustling port. He has uh, sucked up all the trade from Batavia, <laughs> you know, basically. The power of free enterprise and low taxation. I'll put a link there. I didn't make this up, but Batavia is the old name for Jakarta, right? Uh, well, you also so, do you the know, funny accent because that'll be great. That'll be great that was that was my that was my best british accent <laughs> hoity toity anyway but i think the point of it just trying to say here is like i think i think the big part of it is just like are you in singapore for five years are you just to try it out are you here for a long, long time right because i think there's a lot of stories about whether you're doing a short-term game or a long-term game right i think if you're doing a short-term game uh, where you know, you're going to be here for five years then you think carefully right am i going to be an operator am i going to be an employee i mean you do things very differently right and like you said if you want to be part of an expatriate or other hobby or identity community it's not really a problem right if you're just here for five years uh, but if you're planning to be around for a long 10 20 30 40 you know there's a great channel right by Max Chernoff, which you know profiles you know immigrants to Singapore who have been here for a long time. Then I think the conversations about how you want to integrate and who you want to have conversations with and how you want to kind of like join the culture in that sense is very different. I think that's really important because if you don't have your personal and family stuff situated, you can't really even get started on your professional side, right? And it changes the type of relationships you want to build on a professional side. So those are my thoughts initially. What's your initial what's advice to someone coming in? Oh gosh. Mine wasn't so profound. I think mine was much more tactical. Oh, go for it. Why not? Uh, I mean, I think like Singapore is a small place. And so, you know, you just start with one conversation and, you know, people will introduce you to other people. And I think I would start with like first leverage, you know, the networks you do have, right? 
So whether it's your school networks, your professional networks, like mm. take that and parlay that into more conversations to build up your picture right. of what's going on. But I think related to your thing about the personal is I think you have to find ways to build community for yourself. Um, right. And so when we first moved back, even though I grew up in Singapore, I hadn't lived in Singapore for 20 years. So yeah. in some sense, like I actually had to start from scratch. Yeah. And what we did was we just had dinner with like the two other people we knew who worked in tech in Singapore and we're like, <laughs> bring a friend. So yeah, you yeah, sort yeah. of, you know, started with like a dinner group of six people. And we sort of started that as a way to like get to know people in a more intimate setting and right. then kind of steadily built outwards from there. So everyone we met was kind of like referred in from that initial group of like four people. Um, and right. that was actually a great organic way to kind of keep meeting people, but also keep touch points with a consistent group of people over time. Um, and it's something that I tell people about and I recommend that they do for themselves because right. there is quite a lot of flow in Singapore. I do think that people are pretty open to meeting new people. But people are also kind of allergic to the idea of networking. And so I think smaller group settings actually foster like more openness and sharing and can help you feel more comfortable and situated in a place. So you're not kind of like just like your job and your apartment. You know, if you kind of want to build more around that. But I, I think getting into some of these WhatsApp groups, which you will get put into and then following up with people once they're like, hey, there's an event happening or I'm working on this or whatever it is. I think those are great ways to kind of just start getting plugged in. Right. And then, of course, you know, listening to our podcast. <laughs> go hit up Shein. Go hit up Jeremy. That's the key advice is to hit like this. There we go. Um, well, Jeremy runs Jeremy runs a great community, you know, associated with the podcast. And I think it attracts like-minded people. But I mean, I think that's like something that's like pretty different, right? Is that this whole place runs on WhatsApp groups. Yeah, I, I do think one thing is that what struck me about it was a conversation about Singapore being small. But I think the inverse way to look at it as well is that it's also very dense. I think density is also important for serendipity, right? So I, you know, I was walking out of work and I saw Bohan Balani at E27. He was like locked in, right? Into his like, headphones and I'm just like, I started dancing in front of him. It's like, what? who is the stranger weirdo dancing in front of me? Because he's just like, he's not paying attention, right? And then I was like, hey. And then he was like, oh. And he himself was like, oh, that's so funny. I just ran into you because I was at a coffee shop, met two founders uh, separately by accident. We just said hi. I do think about that quite a bit because I think maximizing serendipity is really, really important because obviously there's intentional networking that you talked about, right? Conversations and so forth. But serendipity, luck of meeting the right person is often a big part of it. But you need to have density to make it really happen at that reaction, right? Uh, another founder that I met who had traveled in was like, wow, one interesting thing about Singapore is like, he was just saying like, I have all these meetings with people back to back, you know, and everybody's on the same place and I can have conversations in the same day back home. I'm just kind of like, you know, kind of like stuck in traffic or whatever it is, right? So the density of that rate of introduction is actually slower right from his perspective um, so I think there's something that's a plus but I think there's something that you do have to once you get into the flow like you said I think you get that density sensation but otherwise it doesn't it feels a bit hard to cross the hurdle yeah, yeah. for sure I would get point about the returning. I mean, I think turtles, they call it, right? Pioneer in China. But I think the concept of like folks returning to their home countries across Southeast Asia is quite a common one, right? And I think this is phrase I always loved. It's called like culture re-entry shock. So it's like culture shock. When you enter a new culture, you get culture shock. But actually, there's a, something called re-entry which is phase, which means that you were from that culture and then you went there and you came back and then you actually, it's okay to have culture shock, right? So I was like, yeah, this is a good way to describe it because for myself, I came back a couple of years ago as well, right? What was um, the biggest re-entry shock? Well, a couple of the fact that it was a pandemic that oh. kind of kicked in real soon after. But I think the big difference for me was information opacity was kind of really real. So what I mean by that is just like, when I was in Boston, New York, I think whenever you're working with founders or VCs, I think there's a lot of this being 
being freely shared about ABC. But I think, you know, within Southeast Asia, you know, there's like three parts, right? One is, I think the ecosystem is good, right? So, it's, you know, people are not like, don't volunteer as much information, I would say. So I think that's one big piece. The second part of it is, I think there's also the fact that there's actually a silo between ecosystems, right? So if you're in Indonesia, obviously understanding Singapore ecosystem is, is more opaque versus, you know, Singapore to Indonesia is like what? Singapore to like San Francisco to New York, right? There's a little bit easier flow. And then thirdly, of course, I think it's opacity around certain verticals because everyone's just figuring it out. Mm. It's like, we don't understand what supply chain is. We don't understand what Rarong tech is. We don't understand what local fintech is. So everyone's still figuring it out, which is okay. But I think there's an interesting dynamic where I think it felt like there was that, that ramp of information, right? Especially Especially like if you go to Substack these days, right? Or Twitter, it's like all full of information about America. But how much information is there about Southeast Asia that you can read online? It's a good point. And I wonder why. I mean, I think founders are generally more reticent in region. Yeah. I would say. Right. I had a founder conversation yesterday and he was like, who do I ask this question to? Like, I wouldn't ask my investors this. And I'm like, hey, man, I'm sitting right here. <laughs> and he's like, and he's like, no, no, no. He's like, okay, you're okay. You're... But basically, the 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 sentiment behind it was, I think, like he didn't really want to show weakness to his investors, like that he didn't know something. Yeah, and I get it, but also I think that's something we want to change. I, I think we want people to ask for help more. Right. And like you said, everyone is figuring it out. It is okay not to know. In fact, it is normal not to know. Right. And you're going to know faster by asking than pretending you know. And, and we should be open about helping each other kind of progress. Well, I mean, information asymmetry is, you know, an edge, right? And I think that's the rationale, I think, for that's one. And then also power distance is a real feat sensation in Southeast Asia. So I think there's a little bit more of a power distance between one stack to the other stack, right? So I think we have those two things combined together. I think it's quite common for folks to feel like, hey, you know, if I share, it's going to be with my friends, right? Or who I really trust. Free flow. Right, because I think when you have an ecosystem that has more information transparency, one of the benefits obviously benefits new founders and it benefits the founder ecosystem, which includes more mature, sophisticated founders as well. And it also benefits VCs, right? Because people are trying to figure it out. But in the short term, information asymmetry benefits incumbents, it benefits founders who have kind of like cracked it to some extent, right? And they don't want to share what the secret sauce is to everybody. I, um, I, I guess so, but like I think I don't really believe in secret sauce. Maybe, Ooh. which is that I think ideas are cheap. Yeah, and just because someone told you how to do something doesn't actually mean you can do it. Sure. And I, if I, you can, then it's not really secret sauce. Like that's just like by yeah. definition, right? So like I actually think like I actually think there's very little downside to sharing like what you do because it's like, hey, if somebody can replicate it, power to them. But also like that's not real edge. It actually has to be something that you uniquely are capable of doing. And that's actually how you build operating leverage, right? It's something that like, yeah. you're uniquely capable of doing. And so I hear what you're saying, but I disagree because this is like when people are like, it's yeah. in stealth and I need you to sign an NDA. And it's like, come on, man. No, I'm not signing yeah. an NDA. And like, whatever you think is a secret thing, like you actually would make more progress faster if you told people what you're doing. I think to add to that, I think there is a small risk by this to put up a bit of nuance there, I think the benefits of sharing is more important than the risk. So I think it is a risk that somebody might go out there and clone it or localize it and so forth or borrow it. I think that's fair. So I just think that when you're in Southeast Asia or any startup you're building, like you need to rally people, right? You need to rally as much you know support, capital as possible. And that kind of goes back to the serendipity piece as well, right? It's like if you, everything's closed, everything's a secret, you can't have any space for serendipity at all because... Yeah. Um, nobody knows they can help you. Right? Yeah. But like, that's the thing, right? Which is like, we need to get more comfortable sharing imperfect things, works in progress. 
Not yeah. everything is shiny and perfect. In fact, most things are not. And and that's like how we actually progress as an ecosystem. We actually have to like, here's what I got. I think it sort of works. I'm struggling with this thing. Can you help me? Yeah. yeah and yeah. then that's, you know, that's how we're going to progress together. But like, I think that's a point that we're still immature in this ecosystem right. is we want right. perfection. And we also like to like exalt people too early, I think. Like to hold them up and be like, look, this is a paragon of entrepreneurship but this was was the best stories i I, I love them too and i was also the beneficiary of these stories as well right i was a founder twice and i I benefited a lot from you know the media putting me on a pedestal early because if not i mean i always remember like my mom like hated whatever i was doing until one day i brought back a straight times article to my face and my co-founder she was like oh i get it now anyway i mean i think it's you know media looking for good positive stories i think they should spotlight some stories yeah uh, yeah we should yeah. but i think it's like how do we, like what do we say about that person right like we don't i think we shouldn't say that we shouldn't say that they solved it yeah i think that's yeah i think that's the most important thing i think i think we can say they're working very hard we respect them for the determination they took on a bunch of risk that other people don't want to do. And they figured out some level of execution that has gotten them to the point where we think that we should feature them because it's not just team and capital. And it's approach. the Singapore story, Jeremy. There was a time <laughs> when people said that Singapore would make it, but we did. That was exactly the song they played at the kindergarten, but it had a kid singing it. And I was like, oh my God, like all my nationalism cells are exploding and vibrating in harmony right now. That's how they get you, right? Yeah, but I, I think that's the, the crux of it, right? Is like every ecosystem has to figure out like, how do you say someone is a hero for the effort, but not a hero because of their results, right? Because if you're a series B, you still haven't solved it, to be honest, right? You know, so. Yeah, and also the um, focus on funding raised, I think, makes people think about the wrong set of goalposts. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I tell everyone, did you start a company to raise money or to make money? Yeah. But, you know, it's it shows that you got picked by a gatekeeper, right? Of capital, right? It shows that you have like cleared a level of market authentication, verification as a signal. This is a quality team, right? You know, that's why. Yeah, but I think that's like, that's, I, I think that's also like challenging because, you know, people always ask me this question. It's like, well, what do investors want to see? And I always say, well, let's forget about investors for a second. Like, what do you want to see? Right. You have incredible opportunity cost in pursuing this business. Like, what do you right. want to see in your business that gives you confidence that you've de-risked it to spend another five years of your life on it right i think that's like a more important conversation to have instead of seeking this sort of you know external validation which let's face it right investors are wrong a lot yeah right but their models account for that their models account for being wrong a lot and hopefully being really right a couple times yeah you know 18 out of 20 times can be wrong on that note, uh, any parting words that you want to say? With your kid kind of like sidling back in, trying to be the star? There you go. No, I mean, I think I'm incredibly optimistic about this ecosystem, right? I right. think there's a lot of macro stuff that is really pushing us along that I don't think we could have imagined five years ago. Yeah, I agree. Some of it is geopolitical, but I think in terms of like what we as an ecosystem can do to help move it along further, I think there's this sort of notion around like information exchange, community building, like helping each other, I think is really important. And so we want to encourage people to do that, to connect more, create more moments of this serendipity. And then, you know, we can all prosper together or something. Can you, can you do it? What was it? Live long and prosper. How do you do this? Live long and prosper. No, come on. You didn't do it right. That's well, I quit <laughs> one. I don't know. I can't remember all Okay. So you biologically cannot do the Star Trek. Okay, got it. Side rather than the fact that you 
you totally butchered it. Okay, all right. Just I'm like, sorry. I'm fans. sorry. Did I offend your Trekky sensibilities? I'm more of a Star Wars guy, but I do enjoy watching some Star Trek stuff. I think my parting words is, yeah, 10 years ago, like you said, it's a story, right? And 10 years ago, it was pretty much very difficult. And now today, we think it's possible, but we still think it's very difficult. 10 years time, I think it will get easier. And I think people still think it's difficult. <laughs> it will always yeah. be difficult. No, no. Starting a company is always difficult. There's no yeah, exactly. way around that. No way around that. But I just think that ecosystems have been becoming more mature across not just Singapore, but Indonesia, Philippines, Malaysia, Vietnam. So I think it's an interesting dynamic where I think we just go step by step. So yeah, uh, lets you do some really crazy stuff. Stay for the long term, right? And wait for system mature. Uh, on that note, thank you so much, Yen, and uh, see you next week. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.